you can compare decision making in Japan and the US to an airplane and a rocket ship taking off. So with the airplane, you make a certain number of preparations in advance, but you do take off and then you can you can change your course part of the way through. In the Japanese context, all the preparations down to the very small details decided in advance. And then once you push go, I mean, pretty much, it's really hard to make a change once that plan has been decided. Konnichiwa, minasan. Business Success Japan no podcast e yokoso. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buechelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan specific communication skills, especially in business. While I do not promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. A quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it also helps me keep going as an independent creator. So, thanks in advance. Today, I have the privilege of sharing a conversation I had with Jessica Kennett Cork, Vice President of Community Engagement and Communications at YKK Corporation of America. She is passionate about giving back to local communities through corporate social responsibility programs and building relationships between Japan and the United States. She shows this by giving back to the Japanese community in Georgia through her work on the board of the Japan America Society of Georgia and International Charter Academy of Georgia. She'll go into more detail about her work and community activities in the interview, so be sure to listen through to the end to learn even more. But before we get into the interview, let's go over some useful Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the word for business cards in Japanese. Meishi. 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 This week, I want to introduce a Japanese word that relates to some of what we'll discuss in this episode. Ringi. 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 Although we don't mention this term directly, it's related to another important concept that we do discuss in this episode, and has come up frequently in past episodes as well. Nemawashi, which refers to the informal Japanese style of consensus building during decision making. The ringi system refers to the more formal passing around of a written proposal in order to gain approval from all stakeholders within a company, typically in a bottom up manner, which the informal discussions that make up nemawashi build up to. While the nemawashi style of consensus building tends to be common in Japanese companies of any size, the ringi system, in this more formal sense, is more common in larger or more traditional companies. While time consuming, the ringi system ensures that those involved have the chance to offer their input, gain a sense of buy in to any major decision, and therefore feel some responsibility for the outcome. But without any more delay, let's get into today's interview. Welcome. Would you mind please introducing yourself to my audience? Sure.、Uh, my name is Jessica Cork, and I work as the Vice President of Community Engagement and Communications at YKK Corporation of America. For those of you that don't know YKK, you just have to look at your jeans. You might see a little zipper with a little YKK logo on it. But we make a variety of fastening products, including snaps and buttons and hook and loop and plastic 
hardware and other things that go into apparel and a variety of other applications. It's a Japanese company founded in 1934. So I have the opportunity in my position, which is our regional headquarters, to work with colleagues both in Japan and then throughout the North and Central America region. So then how did you get connected with Japan initially? Yeah, so I've been interested in Japan since I was about 10 years old. My grandfather used to work for IBM. So he went to Japan quite frequently on business. I'm giving away my age a little bit, but this is in the mid 80s when, you know, Japan was at the peak of their economic, you know, explosion. So Japan was very much in the media and around me as I was growing up. So that kind of first piqued my interest. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, I decided to go to Japan for a um, six week long homestay program. And that was the first time that I was ever away from my family. I was placed with this just absolutely amazing family, but they really spoke no English. I could not speak. I, I doubt if I knew one word of Japanese. And so it was a complete immersion experience for me. And, you know, of course, it was really difficult at the beginning. I was, I was pretty homesick. I, you know, back then we had, there was no internet. <laughs> I had one five minute call with my parents at the beginning of the, of the trip. And then after that, completely, absolutely immersed in, in um, Japanese culture. But I, of course, I wouldn't be here today if I didn't, you know, have an absolutely fantastic time and decided um, immediately after that, that I wanted to major in Japanese in college. Um, so I went and I got my BA in uh, Japanese language and literature from University of Massachusetts. And then was, as part of that, I did a one-year study abroad in um, Tokyo at International Christian University. And um, that was also a really great learning experience in terms of immersion. There were a lot of foreign students on campus, but both of my roommates were Japanese. And living in a Japanese dormitory was an experience in and of itself like I think I learned more about that than anything I learned about Japanese culture than anything I learned in class by living in a dorm we had to answer the phones we had to clean you know we had to clean the bathrooms together or you really learn what it means to be part of a Japanese community through that experience and then when I was graduating you know, I had a lot of different options I wasn't really sure at all what to do with a degree in Japanese Many people were encouraging more me towards a degree, um, I'm sorry, to a career in academia, but I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to do that. And I wanted to at least have a work experience in Japan before deciding what I wanted to do. So I decided to participate in the JET program. And I spent three years as a coordinator for international relations in a town of 4,000 people in Hiroshima Prefecture. I was the first JET program participant ever placed in that town. So basically when I arrived, they said, here's your desk. We're not really sure what you're supposed to be doing here. So I had the opportunity to create my own job there over the three years. But that was the most phenomenal experience of my life. You know, even now I can say I just, I, I learned so much. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about Japanese culture, language, of course. And then I just did decide to come back to the U.S., mostly because at the time it was still a little bit hard to really figure out what the options were for staying in Japan. And I was pretty sure that I didn't want to live in a big city, you know, Tokyo, Osaka, somewhere where I thought it'd be easier to get a job. So I did decide to come back. 
all I could do was speak Japanese. I really didn't know what my other skills were. So I naturally gravitated towards becoming an interpreter and translator. So I moved to Georgia, which is where I'm still located. I, I'm originally from New Hampshire. So it actually was quite a big move for me. I didn't know anyone here uh, to work as an interpreter and translator at Kubota, the Japanese tractor manufacturer. So I was spending my days working on mostly on assembly line interpreting between our mechanics here in the US and our Japanese engineers from Osaka, which is interesting because they're speaking Kansai Ben, which I didn't speak very well. And then I had just moved to Georgia, so I wasn't so good at the, the English either. <laughs> and I um, had, a, had a lot of interesting experiences with that. But I did, I did that for just uh, for one year because a position at the Consulate General of Japan in Atlanta opened uh, doing public relations and cultural event planning there. And I spent almost 10 years there at the consulate and um, greatly enjoyed that position before uh, starting at YKK in 2013. It's just such a great and comprehensive history in Japan. I love hearing people's stories with the country, especially working in industries related to it, whether it's in the country or out, there's a lot of similarities there. You told us a little bit about the company you work at now, but can you tell us a little bit more about the work specifically you're doing there? Sure. So my uh, job, I manage our government relations, so our relationship with our local communities and elected officials. I also do internal and external communications and public relations. And I, um, that is for the North and Central America group, which consists of the countries from Canada to Colombia, South America. And then I also am the communications liaison with our headquarters in Japan for everything that's related to, to public relations and global communications. One of the more interesting parts of my job that I really enjoy is leading our philosophy and core values initiative. So our company is very philosophically based. The founder of the company had this wonderful philosophy called the cycle of goodness that says that no one prospers without rendering benefit to others. So it's all about giving back, being a good corporate citizen, taking care of your employees. So I make sure that our employees understand what that philosophy is and how to implement it, you know, in their daily lives, both, you know, and at work and at home and out in the community. So um, that that's one of the more enjoyable things. I also do have the opportunity to get out in our communities a lot. And one of the ways that we give back to our communities is through a sister city relationship. Well, we actually have two sister city relationships that YKK started with our uh, two communities in Georgia and with two of the um, towns in Japan that have YKK factories. So we have students going back and forth all the time. We have mayors going back and forth all of the time. And we even have a medical exchange that involves doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals going back and forth. So whenever they're in town, you know, I get to be a part of, of that grassroots exchange too, which is, is really a lot of fun. Have you seen a lot of fruit come out of that sort of grassroots exchange in your experience? Or? Yes, um, one of like my favorite experiences are, are when we get to send high school students because the high school students, these are from relatively rural communities, both in Japan and here in Georgia, they're small towns. And I have had high school students from Georgia who have never been on a plane before and their first plane trip is to Japan. And they, it is just so eye-opening to them. You know, it just takes them completely out of everything that they've ever experienced. 
and I've had several of them who've decided to go on to study Japanese in college. I have um, two people I can think of who are now current JET program participants, and it was just because of that, you know, one opportunity through the Sister City Exchange to get to experience something about Japanese culture. I also think it really builds good relationships between our expatriate Japanese families that are living in the community as well. Their kids are in the school, and um, sometimes the the families come and they're you know, the, the husband, usually husband, is at work all day, but, but the, the wife and the children, you know, have to be very integrated into the community. And sometimes it can be a challenge to make friends, there's language issues and things. And having the sister city relationship really helps them to, um, you know, to make those connections and, and find some friendly faces. People have been to their hometown. So that's been really great. To watch. And I do actually also want to talk about two things that I'm involved with personally from volunteers perspective as well, because I also think, you know, it's something that's so important to me. So I was part of the founding board of the International Charter Academy of Georgia, which is the state of Georgia's first charter school that is Japanese English bilingual immersion. So we have students that from kindergarten are now studying Japanese immersed in the language. And, and that also has just been very exciting to me to see these kids with that kind of opportunity at that age to be able to learn uh, Japanese. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't even realize that that was much of a movement to have bilingual charter schools between Japanese and English. Because my impression has been kind of that during the 80s boom, that sort of thing might have been more common, but nowadays it's mostly Spanish or Mandarin immersion classes. So it's really great to see that there's still Japanese immersion pro programs going on. Yeah, well, one thing I want to say about that, that is what you might think by watching the media, but we do forget that Japan has a huge following in terms of pop culture. I mean, the students just are, you know, anime is everywhere, the manga is everywhere, music. And that's really driving the interest these days. So whereas I'm the product of the economic boom, you know, the reason that I studied Japanese was because of, of finance and the economy. I think this generation is studying Japanese because of, of pop culture and a real love for the culture of Japan. And I think in many ways, that group of students tends to be more motivated than some of the students that were in my classes, you know, because if you're studying uh, Japanese because you're a finance major and all of a sudden, you know, I actually was in college when the, the economic bubble burst. And I'll tell you like half the students dropped out of Japanese program because they were doing it for business purposes. Whereas today, you know, people are doing it for the love of the language and the culture. So at least in um, among my group of, of friends and colleagues, who those who teaching Japanese uh, both at the high school and the college level have more enrollment than they can handle. The, the classes are actually, it's, there's a boom with Japanese language study right now. I'm so glad to hear that. I hope it just continues to grow in the future. I hope so too, yeah. <laughs> so you sent me a speech of yours that I really enjoyed reading and you mentioned that a lot of your career working as a Japanese bilingual person was spent trying to quote unquote become Japanese in a lot of ways. Would you mind sharing your experiences with that and telling us a little bit more? Yeah, um, so I think like the, the really the first 10 years, you know, like many of us who study Japanese, I, I had gotten pretty obsessed, you know, <laughs> with the language and culture. I mean, I just, I loved it so much, like, I, you know, everything about it. And um, 
and so, you know, really at the beginning, I, I think I was trying to suppress more of some of my natural tendencies um, or even just try to fit in a little too much. So by becoming Japanese, what I mean is, you know, first of all, putting immense pressure on myself to try to perfect the language, which is pretty impossible. I mean, you know, I've been studying Japanese for 25 years and, and there are still there's things I can't read, there are grammatical constructions, you know, I make mistakes in um, grammar all of the time. So I was putting all this pressure on myself, first of all, to be really perfect with the, the language part of it. And then after that, you know, in the business setting, you know, here I was working these Japanese hours, you know, influenced by Japanese colleagues who are working at all hours of the day, you know, obsessively, you know, checking the emails all hours of the day, you're bringing the laptop, on all the vacations, not taking vacation. And, you know, it, it, I started realizing, you know, I don't know if that's the best, if I'm really contributing to my organization in the best way, if I'm just becoming completely immersed and just acting like any of my Japanese colleagues. Really, the way that I can best serve um, any organization I work for is, is to act as a, as a bridge. So there are certain aspects of Japanese culture that become, um, they're very, very natural to me. I mean, there's part of the way that, that I am, you know, that I am personality wise. And I think that's why I gravitated to Japanese culture. So certain things like being pretty serious, being on time, you know, punctuality, planning, you know, for meetings, um, following up with people, you know, following up on emails, you know, that's all the things that, that are really easy for me. But on the other hand, you know, is it really the best thing to never take your vacation or now I'm, I'm a working mom. I have four kids and it becomes completely impossible for me to be able to work the kind of hours that especially a single male Japanese colleague may be able to work or even one who is married, but who has, has, you know, a spouse who's handling all of the, the childcare issues. So I started, I, I would say probably about 10 years ago, being a lot more thoughtful about where I was going to assimilate and then where I was going to, um, where, you know, I needed to say, no, I, you know, I'm that, that's one of the non-negotiables that I'm going to act in my own authentic way, you know, things like leaving on time. And I also started to find myself, you know, when I started to get frustrated or have culture shock while I was living in Japan, is I started saying things like Japanese people always do this, or Japanese people never do that, and, and started to run down the, into you know, the stereotypes and things. And that's when I realized that also is not, you know, a healthy way to be thinking about it. And I think it's because that was my own reaction to the parts of Japanese culture where, you know, I didn't like it, but I was trying to assimilate and that was how I was running in, into problems doing that. Yeah, that sort of contrast between who you are and who you think you're supposed to be would definitely be a big source of stress in, in life, but also just in work itself. But can you tell us which things specifically you were willing to take on in terms of assimilation? You mentioned that you uh, are careful about setting boundaries with your time, especially like in terms of mm -hmm. going home on time and taking your vacation. But which things were you willing to assimilate to when it came to Japanese culture? Sure. Um, so one challenge for me is the um, rather slow process of decision making in Japanese culture just can be it's very hard for me to slow down in that way. I'm by nature a very um, proactive doer type of person. So if I get an idea, you know, I want to, I want to discuss and implement and be already like down the path, like right away. 
And I've realized, you know, over the years, because I've just had so many issues with this, is that it, that's just not the way that you're going to get things done in Japanese culture, that you, I really need to take the time to slow down and to have more discussions with people. So, you know, the idea of nemoashi, like, so the idea of talking up an idea with your colleagues, getting their buy-in, getting their feedback, making changes before you try to implement something is, it's, I have to, if I'm fully honest with myself, it's not always natural for me to do that. I, I'd like to work alone often and I just want to implement. And I, I really have found though, um, it, that really makes me just a better employee and a better manager. When I do start to talk to people, I slow down, I make sure everybody's on board, you know, so that I'm not just driving down the road in the bus and I look back and nobody's back there, you know, <laughs> which can happen if you don't talk things up with people. So that's something that I'm actually very grateful that Japanese culture has taught me because that that's a good skill to have, not just working in a Japanese company, in any company, making sure that, that people know what you want to do, why you want to do it, and then get feedback. You know, feedback helps a lot. It'll improve the process. Yeah, I can see how that would be an asset, especially in American companies where kind of contrary to what somebody might expect, the stereotype of America being so independent, free thinking and things like that how we really do tend to just submit to what our higher ups say. Like yeah. if the decision, we just do it without really questioning it. And it's really cool that we can kind of learn from Japanese culture that it's important to have buy-in from everyone. And that later down the line, you can avoid a lot of problems if you get buy-in from everyone. So I definitely agree that that's a great thing to learn from Japanese culture. And then one thing I would add to that is I think Americans have a mistaken view sometimes that Japanese culture is pretty hierarchical. And it is probably a little more hierarchical than American culture. But on the other hand, it, it's definitely not as hierarchical as some other Asian cultures. And really, the decision making really is happening bottom up. And I think that as Americans, our inclination is to, you know, want to go talk to the boss, you know, within a Japanese organization, thinking that person is going to be able to, to implement the idea that you have or the thing that you want to do. And so many times, you know, I've been told, you know, go back down to, to you know, the people, the people are, are making the decision at that, that level, and it has to work its way up through the entire hierarchy. And as long as you take the time to do that and make sure there's buy-in at all levels, things will have a much greater possibility of being implemented. But that's one mistake I've just made so many times is just trying to go over people or trying to do things too quickly. You know, thinking that the hierarchy, you know, like in the US, if you get the president to buy into something, likely it's going to happen. But I don't think that's necessarily the case in Japan. So you talked a little bit about hierarchy in Japanese companies and another topic that you were willing to talk about that I'm really excited to finally discuss on this podcast is, I guess, what are some unique challenges that women tend to face in Japanese companies? Yeah, so that is definitely a big, big topic and we could, we could talk all day about that. And I think, you know, it's not just women in Japanese companies, it's women, you know, facing challenges in any company, no matter where they work. And it's interesting, back in 2016, I was asked to go to YKK headquarters in Tokyo to talk about my experience being a working mom uh, to my Japanese colleagues. 
And that was really part of YKK's work style reform initiative, which is, you know, something a lot of Japanese companies are, are doing right now under Abenomics and, and Womenomics. And uh, which is a great thing. I, I'm actually really excited to see all the steps that Japanese companies are trying to take. And honestly, I wish some of our American companies would be taking the same type of steps. But the funny thing is, is I, I'm pretty sure one of the reasons I was, uh, I was asked to do this was a way to try to motivate my Japanese colleagues to stay in the workforce, you know, after they get married and after they get, they have children. And I, I think I was being held up a bit as a role model. So you've got this, you know, woman with four kids and she's working full time and, you know, how do you do it? And um, I, I don't know if they were disappointed or not, but there was no way I could stand in front of that audience and act like, you know, I'm superwoman and I have everything, you know, figured out. Really what I got up and I told them was that actually successfully balancing your work life with your home life is really, really hard. And you actually need a lot of support from your company and you need a lot of support from your partner at home. So, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of women drop out of the workforce, and we're seeing that in the U.S. as well. This is not just Japan, but it's because of that idea of the double shift. So they get totally burned out, like they're working all day and then they come home. And if their partner is not helping out with the child's care and, and all the cleaning and cooking and all those things, it, you know, it's, just, it's just completely exhausting. And that was one of the experiences I wanted to talk to my colleagues about is I know that the only reason that I've been successful in my career is because I do have a 50-50 partner who does, you know, as much as I do and more often. So, you know, I, I wanted to encourage women, you know, to continue to, to work and, and to reach their goals. But, you know, I'm pretty convinced that it's also, you know, not really possible unless they have the support of the company. So we really have to, instead of spending as much time as we do trying to encourage women or motivate women, I actually think women are already motivated. Like all, all the women I meet are, you know, incredibly motivated and excited. And this goes for Japanese women and American women. But we need to structure our workplaces that allow both the women and the men to be able to leave at a reasonable hour, you know, to go home and, you know, so both the spouses are at home making dinner, taking care of the children, doing the cleaning, you know, coaching little league or whatever activities. So I get really concerned sometimes, especially in Japan, where a lot of the initiatives in this area are really focused on just the women. So the women can have flex time, the women can have the long maternity leave, you know, the women have all of these benefits. But if the men are not doing it as well, the men are still advancing in their career while the woman is not in the office. And I just get, you know, very worried about that. But, but that's, that's the case, again, both for Japanese and American women. But beyond that, I'd say like more specifically as far as a, uh, an American woman working when I worked in Japan and even now I'm in a Japanese company, which is kind of a hybrid environment. We have both Japanese and American managers. But I think it's really hard for especially Western women to figure out how to act. Like, because, you know, in, in Japan, a lot of the women, even the leaders, are often soften the way that they talk. And, you know, when they have an idea, it may not be always, always as forceful as kind of like, a, a, you know, behind the scenes, they're really good at the memoashi. <laughs> but they also tend to, you know, Japanese culture also tends to be much more of a collaborative or team building culture. 
And I find that all of the advice that is given to American women these days is all about, you know, you need to lean in, you have to give your opinion, you have to take your seat at the table, sit in the front of the room, be the first person to be stating your opinion, or if someone takes credit for your work, you know, call them out and say, you know, that's, that's my work, you know, don't take credit for that. And that goes completely against Japanese culture. So I, I always feel like Western women in particular are walking this, this fine line between what's the right way to act? Like how much is too much? I don't want to be so assertive that I'm aggressive or seen negatively by my Japanese colleagues who might think I'm you know, too opinionated, too outspoken, walking all over people. But on the other hand, if you are too much of a team player, you can have the contrib individual contributions that you're making not recognized, especially by your American managers, you know, who tend to see just the team, you know, the team is the team and not the individual contributions. So that I think is one of the biggest challenges is, is you're not, as a Western woman, you're not Japanese, you're also not male, <laughs> you know, you're in this very weird um, space kind of in between. Yeah, it sounds like an extra level of a balancing act to manage. Do you have any specific advice about that? Or is it more just over time you kind of figure out how to navigate in that space? It's, is it more just an experiential thing or is there anything people I think I think so. Um, one kind of like just in doing reading on the, on the topic and things, one model of leadership that I really like that I think works well for women and also in both Japanese and American cultures is the idea of servant leadership. So that's the, the idea where the leader shares the power with, you know, everyone around them. So putting the needs of the employees first and helping people develop so that the entire organization and the entire team can grow and develop together. So that seems a good way, I think, for especially a female to lead in that more kind of collaborative way that would fit in well with, with American culture, while, or sorry, with Japanese culture, while at the same time, you know, raising the level of the entire organization. And that's actually, that leadership model's caught on a lot of traction in, in the U.S. as well, too. I think, you know, we, we do have some of the companies with the really strong kind of iconic CEOs. But I think we're starting to see more of a societal shift to, to that model of collaboration and community and what's good for everybody and in talking things over and stuff. So that, that's one way that, that I've tried to negotiate that within my own career is, is to, you know, be, be a team leader when possible, but is making sure that everyone on the team has the resources that they need and, and are able to raise up the level uh, as a whole. I think that's perfect advice for people. What influence does your Japanese ability have on how you're perceived in the workforce then in Japanese companies as a foreigner, or I guess more specifically as a non-Asian foreigner? That is very interesting question because, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who does this, I speak very differently <laughs> when I'm speaking Japanese and when I'm speaking English. And I, I think over time, I've just gotten really good at compartmentalizing the way that I am because I've noticed that when I'm speaking English in a meeting where there are let's say there's 75% Americans I'm way more forceful and opinionated and talkative and when I'm in a meeting in Japanese 
um, with all Japanese colleagues, I would say I act much more like a more stereotypical Japanese female in terms of toning it down, taking roundabout ways of presenting ideas. You know, I, I'm, I just, I change and I don't even realize I'm doing it. And I think sometimes it's a function of, of the language you know, that it's just the way it's structured. And I almost go into that mode, you know, it's the mode of the, of the Japanese woman's way of speaking versus the, the, um, the American woman or the, the just in, in the US context, even just how leaders speak, you know. So it's been very interesting to watch myself and I never know whether that's the right way <laughs> to do it or not. It's hard to say how I'm, how I'm perceived. But I can, I think one thing I can tell is I am often, pulled into many projects by Japanese colleagues. And I always say that that's probably a good sign, you know, to be requested to be part of the team. So it's almost like that's my goal in when I'm in the Japanese context is to be, is to be part of the teams that are working to make change within the organization. In the American context, it's more like you want to be leading the team, right? <laughs> so it's kind of a different perspective. Mm -hmm, for sure, especially with the strong in-group, out-group dynamic. I can say how important it would be to make sure that you get invited to participate yes. in group yep. instead of trying to be out and above in an American context. Based on your own experiences and just in your opinion, I guess, what are some things that non-Japanese workers can do to try to balance this pull to try to kind of conform to Japanese culture versus maintaining and sharing their own authentic self in the workplace, whether it's just their personality or their own culture. Yeah, so I did want to talk about some cultural models that, that I've come across and I, I love to read, you know, on this topic. And the one really great book that I enjoyed was by Andy Malinsky. Um, he's a professor of organizational behavior at Brandeis and he wrote a book called Culture, uh, sorry, Global Dexterity. And what he said the trick is that I found very helpful is to first learn the rules of how you're supposed to act in that other culture in order to be effective. So you don't necessarily have to implement all the rules, but you do need to know what the rules are. So, you know, how, how are you expected to act in any given situation? And then you have to figure out, are those rules consistent with the way that you would act naturally? Like, does this come just very naturally to you? Or do you know that this person, you know, certain thing is going to cause you some sort of trouble, you know, and then that's where you can kind of focus. And then you decide to make slight adjustments depending on where your comfort level is. So you do have to have some of, I think, those non-negotiables where you say this is just so you know, again, how I naturally act or, you know, again, working the, the, the hours that are just not possible for you. Like I couldn't have a family and work Japanese hours. So like that would be one of my non-negotiables. One of the things that I had mentioned to you before about getting more buy-in before I implement something, that is not natural for me, but that is something where I can, I can work on it and I can improve over time and gradually I'll get closer to the goal. And then certain things for me are really easy with Japanese culture, like punctuality. Like that is just not at all, you know, a problem. It's just the way that I'm wired. My grandparents are from Germany and Germans are very punctual. And so I just know, I don't even have to think about that one. I don't need to waste the, the time. And then, you know, I think like 
you know, that along with understanding the, the broader cultural context. So I think I, I had started to talk about where I got into very sort of black and white categorizations of Japanese people always, Japanese people never mentality, which is really not not healthy because then I can I can make like a mental list and I can run down 10 traits on which Japanese and, and Americans are totally different. And then I start feeling like the differences are insurmountable. Like there's just no way like we're it's so easy to make them polar opposites. But it's I felt it's a lot easier to think about these things on a spectrum and to figure out where do you as an individual fall on a spectrum and then where does the culture like Japanese culture fall on the spectrum because then you can say okay we are close here and we're far apart there and I'll tell you the only time that I really realized this was when I started to work for YKK because YKK is a very global company. It's the most international organization that I've ever worked in. And my region, even though I work a lot with Japanese people, I also work a lot with Canadians, Mexicans, El Salvadorans, Colombians. I didn't know very much at all about, for example, Latin culture. And I've struggled a lot there also because at the beginning you know i'm thinking of if i think japanese americans are you know in these two columns well then where do i put this other culture and a couple of things that really helped me to better not only navigate those cultural differences but also really learn a lot more about japanese culture than i had previously was there's this one tool that was uh, created by goethe hofstede called the model of national culture. And it, it's back from the 70s. So this has been around for quite some time. And again, you do have to be careful, of course, with the, the stereotyping. But he has this tool on the website where you can put in two cultures, but even more. So what was really helpful to me was I was getting ready to go to Mexico on a business trip I had never been before. I know a lot about Japan. I think I know a lot about the US. I put those two cultures in and then I put Mexico. And across three spectrums, you could compare in a chart, like visually, across, I'm sorry, six, six cultural dimensions, where Japanese are close to Americans and where Japanese are close to Mexicans and where Americans were totally off. So that was eye-opening to me because, again, I was of the mentality Japanese and Americans are completely different. And now here I was looking at, actually, Japanese are really close to Mexicans on quite a few of these dimensions. And they're really close to Americans on other things. So it, it just really changed my mentality, you know, to, to again, that the concept of everything being on a spectrum. There's another one that was put out by Richard Lewis. Um, his is called the model of cross-cultural communication, but he had made a triangle of all the cultures around the world. And he had classified them by whether a culture is linear active, so Americans are like that, you know, very task-oriented, practical, reactive, which are more Asian cultures. So Japanese cultures are reactive. So something happens and then you respond to that versus multi-active, which are what our Latin American friends are, is many things going on at once. Very relationship-oriented, you know, very in the moment, you know. And when I looked at this model, I'm thinking about, my region, which has the Canadians, the uh, Latin Americans, Americans, and then Japanese. And we made a, we were at the edges of the triangle. You had the Americans way over here, the Japanese way over here, and the, the Hispanic cultures up at the top. 
And again, that just got rid of my mentality of the us and them. Like I, I saw it all. Actually, we're close on some things, far apart on other things. And so next, what I need to do is figure out where am I? And that one, there was a model by Erin Myers. She actually just came out with a new book, but she has a, this little quiz that you can take on, on the Harvard Business Reviews website, where she'll ask you a whole bunch of questions and she knows what culture that you've come from and she can plot you on this, these eight cultural dimensions. But the really interesting thing about it is you can see where you actually even differentiate from your home culture. So there's many ways in which I'm not really American, right? Like I've, I've lived in Japan a long time. I also mentioned I was of German descent. So there are places where I don't even fit into American culture. And so that was very eye-opening to me on all these different dimensions to see where do I, you know, where are my, where are my challenges likely to be and what's going to be easy for me? So you can kind of look at all of these models and then um, you can figure out, okay, out of all those things that I need to try to accomplish, so here's the things that are going to be really difficult for me, which of these are really important to my success and which ones probably don't matter that much. So back to the idea of the Nemoashi, that's really important to success in Japanese culture, in Japanese business. If you don't figure out how to do that, you're never going to be successful. So that's the one where I'm like spending most of my time on it. And I know it's hard for me. The punctuality piece is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> and something I kind of wanted to touch on that you alluded to was how, even though you were very culturally competent when it came to Japanese culture, you didn't quite know what to do when introduced to a Latin culture, even though comparatively you were very worldly, you understand other cultures very well. And that really rang true for my own experience because I got to live in South Korea for a year and I found myself kept trying to apply Japanese culture, my understanding of Japanese culture to the Korean context, which during the time made it difficult to kind of function because I was like assuming things that weren't even accurate when it came to culture. But after leaving South Korea, I found that it helped me actually understand Japanese culture better because it all of a sudden wasn't just foreign versus American. It was like, there's all these different dynamics at play and it's a lot more nuanced. So. Yeah, I think it is useful to be able to be aware of other cultures too, not just your home culture and Japanese culture. Yeah, and, and one thing I want to add to that, it's like, I mean, that's where you learn the most about yourself too. I mean, I think out of beyond Japanese culture, Mexican culture, I've learned more about my own American culture and also my own personal, you know, values and, and culture as, as part of that. The other thing that I've found has been really helpful also is trying to figure out why people are acting the way that they are. And that's one thing that having so much experience with the Japanese culture has really helped me with experiences with other cultures now is I tend to question a lot more. Like I used to, you know, when I was younger and first experiencing Japanese culture, you know, for the first time, assume everything is just that's the way it is or that's that's the way it's done now i always wish especially when i get upset or annoyed with something i have to think well why is this happening like it may not be that someone is trying to make me upset in nine times out of ten it's not it's there's a reason for it so back to the punctuality issue you know for example i never thought about time ever because Japanese and Americans are so close in terms of how they think about time. And then again, back to the, you know, German, my German sense of it, we're always five minutes early, 10 minutes early for everything. So I never ran into problems. 
working in Latin America, on the other hand, <laughs> regarding meeting times and when things are going to take place and how they're going to take place, you know, I would constantly find myself just annoyed, you know, that meeting doesn't start on time. People said they were going to meet the deadline. They didn't meet the deadline and just getting annoyed. But then, you know, knowing that everything that happens within a culture really does have an underlying reason what's going on. And that is actually that question regarding meeting times was what initially led me to that, that Hofstetter model where I started, you know, I started you know, Googling around and trying to figure out what was happening. And I realized, you know, the reason that's happening in Latin American cultures is because of the fact that they are so relationship focused that it's very hard for them. For example, if your boss walks in the room, you have a meeting with me, but your boss walks into the room, it's really not acceptable to say, I'm sorry, you know, boss, can I talk to you later because I have this other appointment? You know, it's that relationship is so important. It has to take precedence even though I'm waiting. And if I were Mexican, I could understand that. You know, I would say, okay, boss came in, no problem, totally understand. But as an American, I'm like, well, but you had a commitment to me. Just tell your boss, you know, that you don't, you know, that you have this other meaning. And, and so I started really making, questioning everything. And it helped me, it led me to a deeper understanding and feeling less annoyed, you know, feeling like more accepting of cultural differences. I was just curious about what you thought about the distinction between stereotyping versus having cultural awareness. What does that line look like to you? How do those two things function differently? What are some nuances about those two things? Yeah, yeah, I think um, the assumption, the, probably the most dangerous thing to do is because just because you've had experience with a couple people acting in a certain way is making the assumption that everybody acts in a certain way. And then also, things are not always what they appear on the surface either. And I actually have a good example of this that completely changed my way of thinking. So my stereotype when I arrived about Japanese women in particular, when I arrived in Japan was, you know, that they were being discriminated against, that they were always submissive, they're behind the scenes. It's not fair. Japanese culture is, you know, chauvinistic, et cetera. So I arrived at my office in my small town, and one of the very first things that I was requested to do was to help the women with serving tea every day to everyone in the office. So I was like, oh, there you go. There's a perfect example. Like, the women have to serve the tea. This is not fair. And I just, I really resented having to serve tea to everyone, you know, but I did it. <laughs> I did it because, you know, I'm also trying to fit in. That's, that's one of those areas where you don't, you just try to fit in <laughs> and you don't make a big, you know, that was not the appropriate place to make a big fuss over it. Now, remember, so I'm like 20 years old at the time and right out of college. And, <laughs> you know, so, and then what happened was my boss, who was male, 65 year old guy, said one day after about a year of this, we, you know, suddenly unprovoked, like this is his idea. He says, we are going to be more international. We are going to have everybody make the tea. Like everybody's going to be, um, take part in this. And I, at first I was like, great, you know, progress. This is wonderful. Well, we had all of these charts up in the office that showed all the configurations, like so-and-so gets this color mug with this type, you know, this sugar, so for coffee too. So this type of coffee, this type of sugar, this type of creamer, you know, this person doesn't take any sugar. And it was this whole like Excel matrix chart. 
And the very first day the men started making the tea I, and the coffee, I mean, it was, it was just a mess. Like everything was messed up. All the cups were messed up. The sugars were messed up. And it was just a, a mess. And the women, all the women, regardless of age, immediately stormed in and said, all of you are just so incompetent. We are not going to let you do this. Get out of the kitchen. This is our thing. You know, stand aside. And they went and they took it back over and, and it, it stayed with the women making the tea. And that was a huge learning experience for me because what I thought in the beginning was that the women were somehow oppressed and being forced to having to do this thing. When in fact, their real thought on the matter was that the men were incompetent. <laughs> you know, the men were not capable of doing it properly and they wanted to do it the right way and the way that it, they thought it should be done. And they did not think of it as any kind of degradation to make a cup of tea for their colleagues, you know, to bring them some bit of joy in their life. And it was always the best time of the day when the tea comes out and we had snacks and we chatted. And I actually really missed that, honestly, like if I'm to say, you know, that everybody's doing their own thing and you don't have, you know, someone is doing something nice for you throughout the day. So that really very early in my career, again, just made me ask a lot more questions. I, I was very quick to write that off at the beginning of, of just being what it was when in fact, maybe that's not what it, what it was at all. You know? And I started thinking about other aspects of that in Japanese culture, such as women having total control over the household budget. You know, I don't know how many American women have 100% control over the household budget like Japanese women do. You know, and so that that's just one of those things where I had to take it for granted that um, I thought Japanese women were, you know, were, were more oppressed. I'm not saying there's no problems. There's plenty. <laughs> but I had to rethink the way I was defining. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. But yeah, stereotyping can get dangerous pretty quick. Yeah, I think that's a very clear example. So thanks for sharing that. And also about the finance thing. It's interesting because it's, it seems like it's flip flopped based on the culture, because I, I read a study that said something about millennial women, over half of them deferring to their husbands completely when it comes to finances. So it's like the flip of Japan, Japanese culture where the woman is in charge of the finances. Here, we assume that the man should, well, in some way, people tend to assume that the man should be in charge of the finances. So it's interesting that that's cultural. Interesting, yeah, yeah. And, and that can change with, with age too, right? That, that's actually, you bring up a very good point about generation and age though, when we're stereotyping too, because I think in many ways, both in the US and in Japan, the millennial generation in particular is not always acting in the same ways that um, people from their culture have traditionally acted, right? I mean, we see that. And it's sort of like in Japan, we always had this model of lifelong employment, you know, and, and people coming into a company at age 20 and, and working till retirement. And that's changing very rapidly, even in Japan. And that will change everything about Japanese business. Are there any skills that you learned working in Japanese culture that you've been able to apply to working with other cultures? Or did it more involve stepping back and learning? Like more specifically, like you talked about those models, studying the culture itself versus looking at things that you learned about Japanese culture, being able to apply that to other cultures, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I think certainly the, those models have, have helped. But on the other hand, just the, you know, the immersion experience. So I, I 
try really hard to spend as much time as I can with people and get to talk to people and ask a lot of questions. Like I ask way more questions than I used to ask when I first encountered Japanese culture at a much younger age. So that that's one thing, you know, every time I make a business trip to, to some new country where I haven't been, you know, I, I try to to just just ask questions, you know, what's this? Why do you do that? How do you think about such and such? You know, to just to try to to figure out what what people actually think, so that I don't go down the path of of making assumptions. And I think that's my biggest takeaway is to try. You know, it's hard not to make assumptions, but to to try to figure out what your assumptions are, and then to find somebody to talk to where you can question those things, you know, and and ask about them. And you'll often find that that what you thought is not what you thought when you start to talk with people. Such a great way to approach other countries and other cultures. Not assuming that you know everything. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. So do you have any specific examples of communication breakdown in Japan due to differences in culture? You talked about the tradition of serving tea was kind of a point for you that you learned. Right. The other one being the malashi. Is there anything Yeah, else? I do have one more story, which I, I like to tell this story just because it was my most embarrassing moment. And I don't know if how exactly this happened. It certainly was a communication breakdown or actually a lack of communication. But I was once asked to attend a rice planting festival in my town. And I had seen photos of this, this rice planting festival, and I knew it involved getting into the mud. You know, so you, you get actually into like up your knees in mud and it was ceremonial. So you wear this, this type of yukata on the top and then you, you know, you get into the mud. And so my boss had told me, you're going to attend this. And he came to my house, to my apartment to pick me up. And I, of course, didn't ask any questions. So here's, here's, you know, communication problem number one is when asked to an attend an event, it's a good idea to ask a lot of questions about what's going to happen. And especially what do we wear? You know, what, what, like what's the appropriate thing? So I opened the car and he's there in a suit and I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. And I look at him and he looks at me. We're kind of staring at each other and neither of us says anything. So he doesn't say anything. And I make the assumption, so back to let's not make assumptions. I make the assumption that he has somewhere else to go. Like he's going to his festival, he's dropping me off, you know, and he's got some other appointment. And I don't know what he assumed about me, but I can pretty much guarantee that he assumed that I was not wearing the appropriate pieces of clothing. But anyway, he just let me get into the car and we drive and we get there and I'm told, which I had, I either was not told in advance or I missed the communication, but I was told that I had to make a speech and I had to get up onto the stage and I got up into the stage and the entire city council and the mayor are all sitting there in suits on the stage, you know, all male, all, you know, this middle-aged man. And here I am in, like, I was wearing a hot pink t-shirt. Like I was just dressed for getting in the mud. <laughs> and so I'm standing there and I'm absolutely mortified. Like, and I'm also, if you, you know, my personality type, again, back to the like perfectionist, never wanting to make mistakes, never wanting to call attention or to embarrass oneself. And here I am in the most attention calling, you know, embarrassing situation I could imagine. And I don't really know exactly what I said, but mostly my point was, you know, Americans, like we're always underdressing. Here's a perfect example of how, you know, we, you know, we're always very casual. 
And um, I kind of made the audience laugh. And then to his very great credit, the mayor, who is just the great guy, gets up and he, yeah, why are we all in suits? Like next year, let's all wear shorts and t-shirts to the festival. And so he made everybody laugh. And then, um, and it was all fine in the end. But that's a good example of, you know, how many things had to have gone wrong for that you know, to have ended up the way that it did. Uh, it makes for a memorable story, but if I were to do things over, you know, that experience really made me ask, back to the question asking, you know, when I've got somewhere to go, the first thing always, no matter what culture it is, no matter, even someone says we're going to dinner. I'm like, what do we wear? <laughs> what, what's the, you know, what, what's gonna happen? What's the agenda? You know, do, do we have to prepare something? Do I need a gift? You know, that's really embarrassing with gift, gift giving in Japan, not to have the appropriate thing with you. So I always ask those questions. And one thing I've noticed working with the senior executives in Japan with YKK, and I work quite closely often with their secretaries, those questions always come. They always ask, what do we wear? What's the, you know, what's the agenda? Who's going to be there? Who's the guest list? What, you know, they ask all the questions to avoid any embarrassment, you know, for the person. Ask questions. <laughs> before participating in anything make sure you know what's going to happen don't make assumptions <laughs> because you had that experience and you said it was extremely embarrassing for you and somewhat traumatizing as a perfectionist you'll never forget to ask questions again exactly exactly i'm always wearing the right thing mostly <laughs> yeah. so um, maybe other than just kind of being open-minded and being sure to ask questions whenever you need to if somebody approached you who was going to Japan for business specifically, and you really only attempted to teach them one thing about Japanese culture or Japanese business culture ahead of time, what would you focus on making sure they know? Sure. Well, and one thing has come up so often, so I know no one will forget, but the nemoashi part of it is that for me is absolutely number one. But the second point that I would like to make is, is again about the decision making and the process for decision making. And that is very related to Nemoashi. But the very best example of this that I've seen that always makes me remember it, I wish I could say where I had heard this example, and I'm not entirely sure because it's been a long time. But I um, always let my colleagues know this, is that you can compare decision making in Japan and the US to an airplane and a rocket ship taking off. So with the airplane, you make a certain number of preparations in advance, but you do take off and then you can, you can change your course part of the way through. You can go higher, you can go lower, you can adjust. In the Japanese context being more like, like a rocket launch is that all the preparations down to the very small details decided in advance and then once you push go, I mean, pretty much, it's really hard to make a change once that plan has been decided, you know, like you're, you're just, it's very hard to change course to abort, you know, to, to higher or lower, whatever. But what you have to understand is that, so it's not just about the, the, um, the preparation process and all of the discussions that need to take place in the middle, but it's also the point at which the decision is made. Because in Japan, because there's, there's so much time spent on getting buy-in, often a formal decision will not be made, but pretty much everybody knows it's going to happen. So you actually have to start working on the implementation of a project a lot earlier 
than when the formal decision is made usually at a meeting in which it's officially announced. Because if you wait until that decision-making meeting takes place, you may not have enough time to implement until the, the, you know, you're expected to, to complete the goal. Whereas I think in the US, the decision is made so much earlier, it's like the airplane taken off, but then you know, we're still working towards implementation. So one place where Americans in particular can get really stuck is that they just don't do anything while they're waiting for the formal decision, whereas they really need to be doing something once the initial round of Nemoashi has taken place and there's some buy-in and there's some, you know, like everybody knows, yeah, this is pretty much the direction we're gonna head to actually start with moving towards reaching the goal. So that's one place where I have gotten myself into trouble before is just waiting too long. You know, things that already sort of been approved and I didn't even know it was really approved because it wasn't official, you know, hadn't been announced. Another bit of reading that I would recommend for anyone going to Japan, and I believe that topic was addressed in it as were many of the other topics that I talked about. It's a little bit dated, um, but still so relevant. Uh, in 1999, JETRO, the Japan External Trade Organization, came out with just a really relatively short PDF little booklet called Communicating with Japanese in Business. And I think 95% of the things that were eye-opening to me and that I've implemented throughout my career working with um, Japanese people come directly from that very short, <laughs> very practical um, little booklet. It's still available online as a PDF. And that's one thing if someone is first encountering um, Japanese society, but especially in a business context, it just pretty much has everything that you need to know in a very easy to read digestible format. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated it. I learned a lot and I enjoyed hearing your story too. But is there anything you'd like to share with the audience before we head off for today? No, I, I just think that I guess my, my last takeaway would be it, it's to continue, you know, if you're interested in Japanese language, Japanese culture, to really stick with it. Like there are points especially in language study, but even in cultural study, where inevitably you will run into difficulties, things that feel like they're insurmountable at the time. But then I think if you stick with it, especially over an extended period of time, there's a point where things just start to click, things get easier, uh, everything doesn't seem so difficult. I remember, especially my first year studying Japanese, I loved it, but then I wanted to quit almost every day. <laughs> it just got so difficult. And then just over time, just again language and culture both of it it's such a rich language such a rich culture and so many rewards that can come from from studying both the language and the culture to stick with it and you'll never be bored that's for sure <laughs> no for sure always more to learn which is a blessing and a curse sometimes all right thank you so much i appreciate it thanks for having me Hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about jessica and the resources she mentions during the interview if you enjoyed today's episode go ahead and share it with a friend colleague or a connection on linkedin to help spread the message and the information shared in the podcast and please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. And feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. And if you enjoyed the episode, 
please go ahead and send it to someone you think would enjoy giving it a listen as well. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!